Would you open your Bibles to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 3. And as you'll turn there, I was encouraged this morning because uh, you know that Christy King is so supportive of her husband and adores him and thinks so highly of him. And I was glad to hear this morning from my wife that she thinks Jeff's interpretation of Oh, for a Thousand Tongues is dead wrong. And mine is much more plausible. So I think, thank you for that word of affirmation, uh, Christy. Jeff with a thousand tongues sounds like something out of the book of Revelation, doesn't it? I mean, that's just, I don't know. Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. This is God's Word. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the regions about the Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham." Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in His hand, and He will clear His threshing floor and gather His wheat into the barn, but the chaff will burn with unquenchable fire. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You would Speak to our souls about repentance. And that, Lord God, the, the grief and the angst that is ours when we repent, or we pray that it would all be turned to joy. We pray that You would not allow us to be a people who believe that there's peace, peace, when there is no peace but You would be a God who would help us to be a people who repent and believe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Desperate for His help and without hope except in His mercy. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin this morning by asking you to use your imagination. Uh, kids and adults. And I want to sink ourselves into the reality of Matthew chapter 3, but I want to do it by asking you to use your, your imagination first. First, I need, to imagine, need you to imagine that I grow my hair out long, like really long, and no more fade. And if you're thinking what kind of long, don't think, if you're a Lord of the Rings person, don't think long and flowing like Legolas the Stylish Elf. You want to be thinking more like Radicast, the unkempt brown magician. Maybe a few dreads, a little bit of matted. 
And imagine that instead of khaki pants and a collared shirt, uh, I go get an old t-shirt from the Goodwill and a worn out pair of Patagonia capris. I said you were going to have to use your imagination. I didn't say this would be easy or pleasant. You follow me. Now imagine me in a pair of beat up old Crocs, maybe some camo Crocs with my Patagonia capris, uh, walking out those doors and walking down 4th Street onto Southern Parkway, up the ramp onto the Waterson, down the Waterson to Dixie Highway, and then I start walking further south past the restaurants on Dixie Highway and the car dealerships and the sorry and disheveled strip clubs getting out towards Radcliffe and Fort Knox, but I stop at the LG compressor station and take a right into Otter Creek Park. You know Otter Creek Park? We used to take our kids there when they were little. It's beautiful. And I'm there with my matted hair, my camo Crocs, and a message burning in my soul from seeing all the perversion and materialism all the way down Dixie Highway. And with all that passion in my soul, I find myself a place by the muddy Ohio under a tree and start preaching, turn your life around because God's rule is upon us. But I'm not preaching it the way a man muttering under his breath would preach it at a bus stop downtown. And I'm not gathering a small crowd of people that I met at some dark website. No crowds are coming. Cars are streaming in from Phoenix Hill and St. Matthews and New Albany. The parking lot of Otter Creek Park, which is big enough to hold many cars, is filling up. And actually, cars are lining up down Dixie Highway and people are having to get out of their cars and walk into the park all to find me eating cicadas and honey <laughs> and crying, change your life from the inside out because God's kingdom is here. And the people are not just coming to listen because they're curious and because this is odd, but they're responding by the thousands. They're actually confessing their sins and getting baptized in the muddy Ohio. And uh, it's not just ordinary folks who are coming. The religious bigwigs eventually catch on that this is the big thing happening in town. And so they saunter down expecting to get their religious respect. And they, they come on down to uh, see what's going on in Otter Creek Park. And I tell them to get lost. And who, who told you to be here? And you're just interested in some little ceremony. And God's not interested in some little ceremony. Unless you change your life, you're going to hell and you'll be burned in a hurry. And I keep eating my cicadas and baptizing my thousands. And there's clearly a work of God happening in the mix. Now, I wanted you to use your imagination, but now I want you to see that the truth of our text this morning is actually stranger than my fiction. It's more wonderful than what we just imagined. In our passage... This morning, we are told that in the days after Jesus was born and was raised in Nazareth, in those days, a preacher sprung up and he was preaching outside of Jerusalem, the capital city of the area. And if you read verse 1 of our text, it says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Not downtown in the temple. Not in the normal centers of religious activity. But off in the wilderness, John was preaching. And he was preaching a message he clearly hadn't consulted with the church growth experts of the time to find out what would be most acceptable to the crowds because his message was, everything about you needs to change. He was saying, verse 2, repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. And it wasn't just a simple message that you couldn't misunderstand. It was a message that had been prophesied well over 500 years earlier. A message that we knew was coming because the prophet Isaiah had said, verse 3, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, 
when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And John was not on the cutting edge of fashion. He was outside of the box and what he wore. We'll look at that in a moment. It says in verse 4, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. Now listen to me. If you have any category in your mind for the great revivals of the Bible, the greatest of which is, of course, Acts chapter 2 and the Holy Spirit is poured out and 3,000 people are baptized in one day. You need to take Matthew chapter 3 and put it squarely in that category. This is one of the greatest acts of God ever witnessed by man. If you just look with me for one second there at verse 5, it says, Then Jerusalem this teeming capital city, and all Judea, the surrounding province that Jerusalem was in, and all the region about the Jordan, the people who lived along the Jordan River that flowed in that area, they were all going out to Him. And this wasn't some religious hiccup. This wasn't some uh, carnival that sort of died out and faded. They were coming, and they were being baptized, and it wasn't surface or shallow they were confessing their sins. Whole city, whole region, all along the river, all coming to, 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 to see some guy who, if you will, went to all the wrong seminaries or no seminary at all. And here he is preaching, you need to change everything about your life and they're teeming in. We have here one of the greatest acts of God in the entire history of the Bible. My heart longs for all of Louisville and Kentucky, Kentuckiana, to stream into the churches that are preaching the gospel, or for those churches to go out of their buildings and preach the gospel, and to see hordes of people get on the right side of history because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And don't you want that? Don't you long for that? To instead of bemoaning the downgrade of the culture around us, to marvel at the grace of God being poured out in our midst, see missionaries, instead of seeing one or two trickle in a year, seeing thousands flood to Jesus Christ, like John Patton in his ministry, the New Hebrides, the islands of Vanuatu, uh, now seeing an entire island converted after years of failed labors, seeing the Gospel go forward with unbelievable, majestic power, God can do it. God did do it. God does do it. And I think we should long for God to do it again. And I think John the Baptist has a lot to teach us. John the Baptist, really in his life and as an example, really shows us this can happen. And of course, we can't snap our fingers and twist God's sovereign arm to make Him save tens of thousands of people. Of course we can't. But I tell you this, if we're not faithful like John the Baptist, there's no chance we'll be fruitful like John the Baptist. And if we would follow His example, we have every right to look to God and say, Lord, would You do it again? We're seeking to do, in the words of Francis Schaeffer, Your work, Your way. Would You please put Your blessing on that work. Now, what I want you to notice about John, the thing I think we need to learn, if I could be so grandiose as to say, the thing modern evangelicalism needs to learn is this, that at the center of this successful message was one word that's almost unheard of these days. And that word is repent. Repentance was key to the transformation in the individuals and the community that John saw. He was calling for repentance. And many of you are aware that in 1517, maybe you don't know this, if you don't, then you will. In 1517, a monk named Martin Luther saw a lot of problems in the church. 
And so he went down to the castle door at Wittenberg, which was really just a, it was like a discussion board. That's where you nailed something if you wanted to discuss something with other uh, people at the time. And he nailed to that door 95 theses. That, and these theses, these truths that he saw in the Scriptures, began the Protestant Reformation, a Reformation that is still happening and evolving to this very moment. And do you know what the first theses was? The very first thing Luther put. Now, if you know anything about Luther, you might be like, that we are justified by faith alone. No. The very first thing Luther put on the top of his list of needs for reform in the church was Theses 1. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, He intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. Beloved, is that the dominant characteristic of your life? Someone said, what's He like? Would anyone ever think to say repentant? I saw some Romanian guests here this morning. Often the evangelicals in Romania are known as the repenters. Could we ever get that kind of label in our day? That our churches would be known as the repenters? Or let's go back even a little further in church history before the Reformation, because of course, Martin Luther didn't think up repentance in the 1500s. The first word of application in the first ever Christian sermon preached. Holy Spirit falls on Peter and the apostles on the 120 in that upper room. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches about the cross of Christ. It pierces people to the heart. They say, what must we do to be saved? First word, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. Would anybody say about our evangelism, man, I know they want me to repent. I think many would say, they keep telling me about being satisfied in Christ about being saved in Christ, about grace in Christ. But I actually heard a story not a while back where there was actually someone in our midst, a person who's now converted, who was being told over and over and over various aspects of the Gospel, but no one ever stopped and told them, you ought to repent. But when they heard that, they were saved. Everything about John the Baptist said repentance. His message, his prophecy, his clothing, his baptism. Every aspect, every single dimension of his life screamed repentance. He was a one-message man in his speech, in his prophecy, in his clothing, and in his baptism. And that's what I want to look at this morning, is how everything about John teaches us the vital message we need to receive and we need to pass on that God calls man to repent. Look first at the fact that His message said repentance. His message said repentance. It's right there in verse 2. In verse 2, it says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So we have to ask, what exactly is repentance? If repentance is so central, then what is it? Well, the Greek word translated repentance here could literally be translated a change of mind. A change of mind. To repent is to change your mind. To stop thinking that your ways are right and to come to believe that God's ways are right. If you don't think He exists, then you repent of denying the obvious. And you come to see that He exists. And He's worthy of all your love and devotion. In a few weeks or a few months, we'll jump into the Sermon on the Mount 
And we'll look at divorce, anxiety, prayer, anger, mourning. And all of us here have our opinions about these things. We have our opinions about how to deal with anxiety, how to deal with divorce, how to deal with all of these things. But what repentance is, is that you abandon your opinions. You abandon just thinking through life based on your best ability to think through life. And you submit everything in your mind to God's Word. Repentance is a transformation of mind from thinking your own thoughts to learning what the great theologian called thinking God's thoughts after Him. But if I left it there, I would give you the most woefully inadequate definition of repentance. Repentance literally spelled out metanoia, change of mind. It literally does mean that, change of mind. But if we left repentance there as something merely cognitive, something just intellectual, you just change your opinions, we would be missing the depths of repentance. We would be, we would be cultivating a shallow intellectualism in the church. And Jesus is no shallow intellectualist just interested in changing your opinions. Repentance also means transforming your actions and being sorry for your sins. D.A. Carson, the New Testament scholar, says repentance means to be sorry for one's actions and to turn around to new actions. So then repentance, beloved, involves a grieving heart over sin. The, the mind changing its thoughts about God and about sin. And actions that include transformed behaviors. Uh, repentance starts in the heart and works its way into the mind and goes right out to the fingertips. It touches every aspect of a man. It says change. It says turn. It says do a 180. James Montgomery Boyce tells a story that maybe gives us the best understanding about repentance. He says that on one hand, there were some, at one time there were some children who were asked about repentance, and one of the children said that repentance was about being sorry for your sins. But a little girl in that group had a better definition. She said, it's being sorry enough to quit. That's right. Repentance is being sorry enough to quit. It's true in, true, in true and biblical repentance, which I should add is the only kind that will save you. Your mind is changed. Your heart is grieved. And it's grieved enough that your ways are changed. This was John's message. Repent. The people of his days, of his day, like our day, ignored God. They disobeyed his ways. They did what was right in their own eyes. And his message to them was repent, turn around, change your mind, let your heart be broken over your sin, and do a 180 and run away from your sin. If any of you have done woodworking, you know that when you're sanding something off, you begin with a coarser sandpaper and then you work your way to the finest sandpaper to get things smooth. And we can get the idea that repentance is starting with the coarse, uh, the, the hard sandpaper and then smoothing things off. That's wrong. It's about throwing the whole sin away. It's not about refining who you already are. It's about rejecting you who you've been. Your heart attitudes, your ideas, your actions. They're all to be put to death. They're all to be thrown away. They're all to be run away from because you are dead in your trespasses and sins. And only that action will prepare you to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing I want us to see about repentance is that John's prophecy said repentance. John's prophecy said repentance. Now when I say John's prophecy, I don't mean a prophecy gave. I mean a prophecy given about him. We're told that John was in the wilderness 
raising his voice, preaching, repent. And then right on the heels of that, we're told that this was predicted. This was one of those predictive prophecies, one of those things predicted beforehand and now come to pass. And what we're told here is that John out in the wilderness saying, turn away from your sin because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This was, at this, if you want to look down at your Bibles, this was what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make His paths straight. Two observations that I want to make about this quote from Isaiah chapter 40. I can't resist. Three observations that I want to make. Here's the first one. Isaiah chapter 40 is the first chapter in Isaiah that announces the end of the exile. The, the Jews were being thrown out of their home country. They were being rejected from the presence of God. And Isaiah chapter 40 Isaiah starts coming to them and says, be comforted. I'm going to bring you back. I'm coming to get you. I'm coming to get you. John comes in fulfillment of Isaiah 40 to say, oh, the real end of the exiles now. Now Jesus is here to keep, take away your separation from God. Take, away, take, take you away. Uh, one person has put it this way. If, if in the return from the exile, God brought His people out of Babylon... When Jesus comes, he, he takes Babylon out of them. The second thing, the second thing I want you to notice is that prepare and make straight paths are synonymous with repentance. Or another way of explaining repentance is prepare and make straight paths. You see that? John comes preaching, repent! This was to fulfill the prophecy which said, prepare and make straight paths. Do you see what's going on here? This is so key. What's repentance? It's getting the crooked out. It's taking the sin in your life and rejecting it so completely that you move from a crooked path through life, just following your own passions and lusts, to a straight path that's oriented towards obedience to God. And, here's the best part of repentance, it's not just for itself. It's to prepare you to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Prepare the way of the Lord. The idea here is that Jesus is coming in on a highway and your heart ought to be ready to be that highway. And He doesn't walk down crooked paths. He runs away from crooked paths. But as we straighten our lives up, as we reject ways of sin, Christ comes in. And the treasure comes in. The Savior comes in. The One who will die for all the sins you've committed. And even the imperfect repentance you're a part of. He's on His way in. So the greatest part of repentance is not repentance. It's Christ. Christ the Savior from sin. But the third thing I want you to see from Isaiah chapter 40 is this. It's that Matthew, if you'll let me say it this way, paraphrases Isaiah. Matthew does not quote Isaiah verbatim. What does Isaiah say? What Isaiah said was, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Isaiah says, God's coming. Matthew says, Jesus is coming. Prepare the way of the Lord. And then the rest of the chapter we'll see is Jesus coming, being baptized by John. Jesus, by the end of chapter 4, will teach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John is getting things ready for Jesus. Matthew, sorry, Isaiah says, prepare the highway for our God. Matthew says, prepare the way of the Lord, and in context, it's clearly the Lord Jesus. Which is just one more way the New Testament tells us Jesus is God. If you're looking for verses in the New Testament that say Jesus is God, they're there, but they're rare. If you're looking for passages in the New Testament which take the things the Old Testament says about God and applies them to Jesus, they're everywhere. And this is one of them. Jesus, John's prophecy is to prepare ourselves 
for Jesus through making our paths straight in repentance. Fourth thing. John's clothing says repentance. His clothing says repentance. The camel hair shirt and the leather belt were not just because John had edgy fashion sense. They were not simply a market of rugged poverty either. The clothing said something that was linked to the Old Testament. You see, in the Old Testament, one of the great prophets of repentance is Elijah. Elijah is one of the most spoken above prophets in the whole Testament that we don't know much about. You can find him in 1 Kings 17 all the way through 2 Kings 4. And if you watch the life of Elijah, it's very clear he's a man who calls people to repentance. If you know the story of the uh, worshipers of Baal calling down fire from heaven on their, uh, on their offering, and then Elijah calling down fire from heaven on his, that's Elijah challenging Israel to repent of worshiping false gods and to come and worship the true God again. One of my favorite moments with Elijah is when uh, the king of Israel is sick and on his deathbed. And Elijah's got a nice prophecy, sort of a John the Baptist prophecy for him. And Elijah grabs some of the king's men and he says, hey, go tell the king he's going to die. And so the king sends out 50 men to go get Elijah, bring him to me. And Elijah greets these 50 men by burning them with fire. And the king sends 50 more. And Elijah greets them by burning them with fire. And then the king sends 50 more. And they go, please no. And he doesn't. It's merciful. And these guys, they go back to the king. And they say to the king, and the king says to these guys, who, who, who is this guy saying I'm going to die? Who is this guy? And they answered him. This is First Kings, Second Kings 1, 7 through 8. Who is this guy? He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And the king said, it's Elijah the Tishbite. So when John shows up wearing camel's hair and leather, it wasn't just because his wife hadn't done the laundry, okay? It's, it's because he's saying, I'm team Elijah. I'm on that team. That's who I am. I'm identifying with this prophet from the Old Testament who called people to repentance. And I want you to know that's what I'm doing. And of course, there was prophecies in the Old Testament that Elijah would come before the Lord came. And John is saying, it's at hand. It's here in my life and my ministry. Now, the fourth thing... I want you to notice about Elijah is that not only did his message say repentance and his prophecy said repentance and his clothing said repentance, but his baptism said repentance. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, I baptize you with water for repentance. The baptism that gave John his name was for repentance. Now, that doesn't mean that to get dunked in water, that is literally what the word baptism means, to dip or submerge in water. That doesn't mean that getting dunked or submerged in water is repentance. The Bible is the enemy of merely ceremonial religion. God hates people who just go through religious motions thinking that those religious motions will change His attitude towards them. And yet, throughout the history of the church, there's been more and more movements to get people focused on religious external rituals. So some people will say in the New Testament, you need to get circumcised to really belong to Christ. Or you need to adopt the Jewish feast days to really be part of Christ. Or you need to be baptized to be really saved by Christ. But these people who make rituals primary totally misunderstand the rituals and they misunderstand the Gospel. You see, John's baptism was not repentance. It was for repentance. 
That is, those who were repentant should be baptized as a symbol to show their repentance. The external ritual was nothing without the heart reality of repentance. And I'm not just giving you a theological lecture. This is what's happening in the text. Do you see what happens when the Pharisees and the Sadducees come? Verse 7, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who by the way didn't agree on anything, so it's amazing they're coming in together to check out John's baptism, sniffing at it with an air of judgment. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are coming to his baptism, and he says to them, you snakes. He clearly didn't think they had come for genuine reasons. You snakes, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And then he says, get out of here until you've actually got changed lives. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And he knew that when he said that, they might walk away going, well, we are the children of Abraham, so we know we're going straight to heaven. So being a good prophet, he knocks that false confidence right out from under him. And he says next, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is, God is able to from these stones raise up children for Abraham. Don't think you're something special because Abraham's your daddy. A rock could do as good as you if God transformed it and made it one of his living worshipers. And then he tells him, you're about to be destroyed. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that therefore that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He says, if you don't change your life and bear fruit in keeping the repentance, that is live like you're actually repenting, you'll be destroyed. John is crystal clear that he wasn't just there to get people wet. He wasn't just there to get people through a ceremony. He was after the repentance of the heart. And he had a ceremony that displayed that reality, but didn't replace that reality. So beloved, John is telling us, repent, that's my message. Repent, that's what I was prophesied to come and say. Repent, I'm dressed for it. I'm dressed to tell you I'm here in the line of Elijah to call you to repent. And this baptism is not some ceremonial distraction. It's an expression of the core of what I'm calling you to. To repent of your sins. And I want to apply this in three ways. And I'm going to sit down. But I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to lie to you. It's my heart that before I sit down, God will have thoroughly transformed our lives. The fact that the message of repentance is so critical is because you must repent if you would escape the wrath of God. You Believer, unbeliever, church kid, not so church kid, you must repent if you would escape the wrath of God. John's made that clear. If we don't repent, we will be destroyed. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You'll go to hell. If you do not repent. But if you do repent, you will be prepared for Christ. And Matthew tells us that Jesus means he will save his people from their sins. Those who repent receive Jesus who saves them from their sins. And Jesus forgives sins, overpowers sins conquers sins, and delivers us at the resurrection from the very presence of sin. But all of this is only for those who repent exclusively. If you skip repentance, you will be skipped over on the last day. You will not be saved. There is no way to be saved without a life, an enduring life of repentance. Which means, beloved, that you must not believe lies. Because lies will keep you 
from real repentance. You must not believe the lie that says nothing will happen after we die. That's everywhere. It's, you know, this little life, blip, blip, blippity, blip, we evolved, we're gone, it's over, nothing happens after you die. That's a lie. And it will keep you from repentance. The truth is, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. And then after judgment comes the sentence that you will be thrown into the fiery furnace, into the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The only escape from that place is repentance. Don't believe the lie that God won't judge sin. I mean, everybody's doing it. How big a deal can it be? This is the lie that Satan came after Eve with. You're not really going to die. I mean, he doesn't want you to do that, but you're not going to die. Don't believe it. You will die and you will enter eternal torment. Paul says in the letter to the Corinthians, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, and I don't care if you're a baptized sexually immoral people, baptized sexually immoral people do not inherit the kingdom of God. Nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Don't believe lies. None of those people will be in heaven. They may be in churches, but they will not be in heaven. Do not believe the lie that if you're, if you're doing your best, God won't judge you. Oh, I'm doing my best. <laughs> what more could he ask? There is a path before each person that seems right, but in the end leads to death. Proverbs 14, 12. You cannot do your best. You must repent and believe. And do not believe the lie that because you feel safe and secure, you are. I mean, it doesn't look like it's cloudy with a chance of rain and maybe a little final judgment. It doesn't feel like that, does it? Feels like life's going on, fine, you know? It's exactly how it felt in Noah's day. In Noah's day, Jesus tells us they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. They were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. The Son of Man's going to come on a really average day that looks like it's going to have a tomorrow. Matthew 24, 37. Don't believe the lie. The days just keep going on without end. Repent now. Repent today. Repent every day. Don't believe the lie that God's judgment only comes on really bad people. Or so-called really bad people. Good trip through the book of Romans will cure you of any idea that there's just really bad people out there somewhere. Don't believe the lie that God's judgment only comes on so-called really bad people. Back in Jesus' day, a tower fell in a place called Siloam and killed 18 people. And he used that story to warn the people of his day not to think that towers only fall on really bad people. Jesus said, those 18 of whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed, do, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Don't believe the lie that there's some really bad people who get it out there. All of us who die will be punished if we do not repent. Don't believe the lie that if you repent, your life will be boring and full of regret about all the good times you missed out on. No, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7.10, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. You're not going to regret missing that party. You're not going to regret missing that fashion trend. You'll just look dumb in 10 years. You're not going to miss anything if you pursue a life of righteousness and repentance and, and salvation in Christ. No one will be sitting there in heaven 10,000 year years in going, I wish I would just lived a little. No, no, no. Don't you worry. 
And do not believe the lie that repentance is an option that Jesus is giving you. Acts chapter 17.30 tells us that God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Do not go on and sin another week, another day, another minute, thinking you'll repent when you're good and ready. You have been commanded to repent. If you didn't know it before today, you know it now, and every moment you ignore is an, is, is an act of rebellion. Beloved Christians, we need to believe Luther, and more importantly, believe the Bible that we must continue in a life of repentance. But you know what I find is that Christians, they get themselves entangled in half-repentance. Just enough repentance to make you miserable and not enough repentance to make you happy. And there are multiple half-repentances that Christians love to live in. But beloved, if you do not press on to full repentance... You will not see the Lord. One way that Christians half repent is by confession. Confession. We confess. I sin, I confess. I sin, I confess. I sin, I confess. There's some Christians, you just know they're so humble because they're always confessing. But guess what? You can confess as a masquerade to stay miles away from change. In fact, you can shield people from pushing you too hard about change if you'll just throw up the smoke screen of confess. You say, well, Ryan, confession is part of repentance. It says they were being baptized, confessing their sin. Yes, that's right. Confession is part of repentance. And what we love to do is isolate a part out to keep ourselves away from the real thing. It's right that you admit your faults. It's right that you admit your wrongs. It's right that you confess your sins. But true repentance runs away from the thing you're confessing. It gouges out eyes. It cuts off hands. It does a 180. It doesn't simply sit there hugging the wickedness and confessing it all along. It runs. Another way in which Christians can engage in half-repentance, which ultimately becomes no repentance, is remorse. Remorse. We hate our sin. We hate ourselves. We feel bad. We feel guilty. We feel sinful. We feel honest about our total depravity. We regret what we've done. We feel bad. We have remorse, but we're not repenting. Sorrow is a good part of repentance, but if you just live in a place of sorrow, then it may be that sorrow is just the price that you're willing to pay for going on in sin. You love that sin so much, and you feel a little better about it by feeling bad about it. Listen to what our forefathers said about repentance. This is from the Baptist Confession of Faith from 1689. And if you think, oh, that's old and antiquated, just stop that and think, Pastors are speaking to me from 350 years ago? Yes! Saving repentance is a gospel grace in which those who are made aware by the Holy Spirit of the many evils of their sin by faith in Christ humble themselves for their sin with godly sorrow, hatred of it, and self-loathing. They pray for pardon and strength of grace, and determine and endeavor by provisions from the Spirit to live before God in a well-pleasing way in everything. They don't just feel bad. They beg for help. They don't just feel bad. They determine to walk in a new pattern of life. Well, I could say more, but I think I need to sit down. I'll, I'll leave you with these words. Not only do you repent, that's my first question, but do you call other people to repent? When was the last time someone heard you tell them that they needed to repent? Man, God's not working like He did in the days of John the Baptist because of His sovereignty. Oh, aren't you a pious Calvinist? 
Churches full of people not telling others to repent, wondering why they're not seeing results. Abandon God's ways, and you will also abandon God's results. Undoubtedly. When was the last time someone heard you say, Jesus commands everyone everywhere to repent? I was talking to a friend years ago, and he was telling me that he was having lots of gospel opportunities at work, but they weren't going anywhere. There was lots of opportunities for him where he was sharing what he believed, they were sharing what they believed, but it didn't seem to go anywhere. And it, why? The reason is because his evangelism was more of a comparative religions class than a gospel proclamation. It's good to talk to our neighbors about what they believe. It's good to be sensitive and wise listeners. But it can't end there. We aren't just a people curious about what others believe. We're a people with a message from the king. And that message is the king has commanded everyone everywhere to repent and believe. And so I would just encourage you, in your evangelism, don't just find out where they're at. Don't just tell your testimony as good as both of those things are. But make sure it terminates here. That you've come commissioned by God in all humility and grace to call and even to command everyone in rebellion to repent for their good so they could know Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray to You and ask You to make us a repentant people, a joyful people, and a people who call others to repent. We pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen.